2: climate change is happening in New England.
3: Wherever we are in the world today, climate change is deeply affecting our lives. It's causing incredibly costly climate-related disasters.
2: This is a special from the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified.
0: Today, we'll look at how the incoming Biden administration could affect climate action in the region.
1: This is very much a solvable problem. We just need to invest in it and have government policy that steers us in the right direction.
0: And as the impacts of global warming are felt around the country, where people might migrate to get away from extreme weather and what that
4: could mean for New England. Climate people have been talking about this and raising the alarm for a very long period of time. And, And some of them were talking about, you know if you were gonna move, where would you move to? And so I took that to heart.
2: That's coming up after a break. I'm Morgan Springer.
0: And I'm your co-host, Tracy Griffith. Thanks for joining us.
2: Today on Next, we're switching things up. Ahead of the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, we have a special from the New England News Collaborative and America Amplified, focusing entirely on climate change.
5: The United Nations has released a grim and alarming assessment about the impact Impacted of climate staggery. change.
0: Wildfires across the West Wildfires spread. Wildfires burn and scientists 5 climate change million
4: acres there one Structures one bent to the will of the flames. Unfortunately, we now know at least six people are dead following landfall of Hurricane Laura along the Gulf
0: Coast. We may think of wildfires and hurricanes as extreme weather events plaguing other areas of the country, far removed from New England. But the reality is the climate is also changing right here, right now. So to kick off the show, we reached out to people in our communities and heard how climate change is
4: already affecting their lives. Clearly we've seen the impacts here with hotter, drier seasons.
1: This summer was the warmest on record and that was very difficult for people uh, comfort-wise.
4: How has it affected my life? Very deeply. Now we've got text galore
5: everywhere. The most notable thing is how every winter keeps getting warmer.
4: (laughs) Climate change has affected me by stressing me out.
2: There are times of the year because of the sea level rise that East Boston starts to flood.
4: Back when I was younger, In the days when we would go hunting, we would always hunt in snow in November. But today, you can really go out hunting in just a pair of bean boots and be just as warm and comfortable as uh, probably the deer are in the woods.
2: Those are the voices of Rob Maddox, Carol Hansen, Evan Bine, Bill Bentley, Alex Williams, Kelly Chris, and John Bear Mitchell.
0: Not everyone we talk to has noticed the effects of climate change, including Russell Anderson of Bristol, Connecticut.
1: Thus far, I I really can't claim that it's had a huge impact on my life.
0: Joining us now from Massachusetts to talk about climate change in New England is Rachel Cletus. She's the policy director for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She also participates in international climate negotiations. Rachel, welcome.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So we've heard from New Englanders about how climate change affects them. And we've heard some people say that they haven't even been affected personally at all. Are they wrong?
3: Wherever we are in the world today, climate change is deeply affecting our lives. It's really changing seasons. It's changing extremes. It's causing incredibly costly climate-related disasters. And here in New England, that's no exception. We too are seeing climate seriously affect everything around us, our seasons, our very way of life. So yes, climate change is here and now, and it is profoundly changing
0: our lives. Okay, let's talk a little bit about specifics. What are some of the concrete ways that we've seen climate change in our region?
3: Well, here in New England, one of the striking things has been that uh, we are seeing our temperatures here, our average temperatures here, rise faster than the global average temperature. And that means that overall, we're seeing more extreme heat days. We're also seeing more events where we have very heavy rainfall events that contribute to flooding. We're seeing the other extreme too, droughts that affect farmers and others. We're seeing sea level rise that's causing more coastal flooding, affecting properties all along the coast here in New England. And fundamentally, we're seeing a season shift here.
0: You mentioned sea level rise and you mentioned flooding. One model says that the nearly 12,000 properties in Maine are at risk of flooding already.
3: Yes, the Union of Concerned Scientists has been doing research on the impacts of sea level rise on flooding all around the country, including here in New England. And what we should recognize is that well before places go underwater, What's happening is high tide flooding is already affecting coastal properties, and that is projected to get worse as sea levels rise. What we found was that around the nation, we have billions of dollars of coastal property that is at risk from this kind of high tide flooding. In Massachusetts, for example, by 2045, We could have 7,000 residential properties currently home to 14,000 people at risk of this kind of flooding. That's $4 billion worth of residential property that could be at risk. Rachel, have
0: you or your family been personally affected by climate change?
3: You know, there are a lot of ways in which climate change is affecting all of us in our family. The way we've seen it happen is because my kids and my husband are ski enthusiasts and uh, there's just been a really complete shift in ski seasons here in New England. My kids are in schools here in New England that have not been built for extreme heat. So many of the classrooms don't have air conditioning. Uh, It creates a really hot, stifling environment sometimes where it's hard for kids to focus and learn.
0: So the Gulf of Maine is warming at a faster rate than almost any other part of the ocean on the planet. And I want to play some tape from Kelly Chris, a director at the New England Aquarium. Here she's talking about how climate change is altering marine life in our region.
1: If you
2: think about our own selves, we like to live in a certain temperature range and and we have the ability to, to a certain extent, control the temperature around us, but The marine life that lives in the ocean that's warming so quickly, they either have to adapt or they have to change their distribution based on their preferred temperature range and also the other living conditions like salinity and and the amount of oxygen they like in the water. And so that's happening not just to lobster, but to all of the marine life in our area.
0: So kind of in line with what Kelly is saying, a federal report highlights how milder winters, and earlier springs are already affecting, and in some cases, hurting plants and animals. What do these changes mean for the economy and culture of New England, Rachel?
3: So there are fundamental ways in which it's affecting those activities that are most primarily connected to our natural ecosystems. And that starts, of course, with things like farming and fisheries and tourism, So we've seen temperature changes affect the distribution and productivity of fisheries here in New England. As you mentioned, the Gulf of Maine is heating up very fast. We're also seeing ocean acidification, which has an impact on shell-forming species, and that affects aquaculture, a very uh, valuable industry here in New England.
0: Let's move to talking about the future. What is in store for New England Under the most extreme warming scenario, let's say 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, what can we look forward to?
3: Well, the most important thing that we should understand is that future depends on choices we make today. That future, yes, we have a lot of impacts that unfortunately are baked in because of global warming that has already occurred But our choices in terms of curtailing heat-trapping emissions will have a really profound effect on limiting how extreme some of these impacts get. That said, by mid-century, if we don't have a significant cut in heat-trapping emissions, we can expect extreme heat to rise here in the Northeast. Something that's been relatively rare in the past will become commonplace, for example, places like Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, that have historically averaged about seven to 10 days per year with a heat index above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, will see in many places, some states seeing an equivalent of four to six weeks of such conditions on average each year. A place like Bangor, Maine, rising from three days to 24 days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit by mid century. Now, especially here in New England, where we haven't been used to these conditions, where our built environments are not built to cope with these kinds of conditions, the natural ecosystems have not had an exposure to these kind of conditions. We'll see some pretty profound changes.
0: We asked Leticia Colon de Mejias, an environmentalist in Connecticut and CEO of Energy Efficiency Solutions, what concerns her most about climate change in New England. And here's her response.
1: I am really concerned about the equity gap because what I have seen historically in my studies of the way the world works is that when things are in shortage, it's the vulnerable people that suffer. So as this gap starts to widen and water becomes less accessible, clean, potable water becomes less accessible, clean, safe food is less accessible, what we're going to see is that disparity gap grow larger and larger. And those people who are vulnerable are going to suffer the most, which we're seeing already in other parts of the world.
0: Vanessa Lyles wrote on Facebook, Environmental racism affects my life every day because of the environmental harms and violence forced on low-income neighborhoods. It's never a concern unless the people who live in these communities make it a concern. So who will be impacted most by climate change, Rachel? Are you concerned about the equity gap?
3: Absolutely. This is one of the most insidious and Unjust aspects of how climate change is coming to bear. Yes, it affects us all, but there is no question that it is having a disproportionate effect on low income communities and communities of color. So, just take one example. In most cities, we have an amplification of extreme heat through an urban heat island effect where paved surfaces absorb heat during the day, radiate it out again at night, and really intensify extreme heat. And what we found and what research has found around the country and here in New England too, is that the communities who tend to live in places that are more highly exposed to the urban heat island effect and the risks of extreme heat in urban settings tend to be communities of color and low-income communities. This is because of a historical legacy where many of these neighborhoods where low-income communities and communities of color live have not been invested in. There isn't enough green canopy and shade. People who are low-income folks may not be able to afford air conditioning. They may not be able to afford the bills to keep themselves cool during extreme heat events. And that means that they will be more at risk from the health impacts of extreme heat. So there are many compounding problems here. It's basically climate risk is coming on top of longstanding socioeconomic inequities and frankly, the legacy of racism in our country.
0: So if we don't do anything or much to deal with the climate change issue, as policy director, how are you feeling about the state of things? What's going to happen to us? What what are our chances? Well, I
3: am very convinced that uh, we will take action. And the reason for that is because these harmful impacts of climate change are so clearly here and now. We have had year after year of multiple billion dollar extreme weather events here in the US. Everything from droughts to hurricanes, to wildfires, flooding, this is here and now. And so policymakers have to act in the interest of their constituents.
0: Rachel Cletus is the Policy Director for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
4: We're
2: going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll explore whether there's the political will for meaningful climate action. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Morgan Springer.
0: And I'm Tracy Griffith. Welcome back. This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Tracy Griffith.
2: And I'm Morgan Springer.
0: President-elect Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. He's called climate change an existential threat. But the question remains, is there the political will, internationally, federally, and on the state and regional level to stop global warming. Before we
2: jump in and start talking about how we might pursue meaningful climate action, we want to bring in the comments of New Englanders. Ahead of the show, we asked how climate change has affected the lives of people here in the region. Here's Genevieve McDonald from Stonington, Maine.
0: It used to be when we had king tides or storm surges that we would experience washover in our causeways, and now that is happening more frequently. You know, it leaves seaweed and debris and rocks and our plow trucks that we use for snow are now plowing piles of seaweed in the middle of summer. So that's unusual here. Dan Pratt wrote, I prefer the term climate chaos to describe what I'm experiencing as a certified organic farmer in western Massachusetts. He said increasingly unpredictable frosts and extreme weather are making it more difficult to grow food in our region. We also asked you who should lead the response to climate change.
1: It definitely has to come from our government.
4: The most cost-effective way is clearly if the federal government leads.
1: It has to be the president. It has to be
3: our administration. They have to join with other world leaders because it's a global
4: problem. The government, local, state, federal, the whole nine.
1: Individually, you can make choices like, I am going to insulate my home and draw down my energy demand by 30 or 40%. That
2: was Svetlana Wasserman, Rob Maddox, Maricela Peraza-Baker, Alex Williams, and Leticia Colón de Mejías. We also put the question to Leah Stokes. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and an expert on climate and
1: environmental politics. Here's who she thinks should lead the charge. The federal government. uh, You know, this is such a big problem and sort of going to require a lot of investment uh, and so I think that the federal government really needs to be uh, driving in many ways this process with lots of partnership with state and local government and really just with people all over the country.
2: As President-elect Joe Biden prepares to take office, here's what he had to say at a press conference when he was announcing his climate team.
1: Folks, we're in a crisis. Just like we need to be a unified nation in response to COVID-19, we need a unified national response to climate change. We need to meet the moment with the urgency it demands, as we would during any national emergency.
2: So you say the federal government needs to take the lead. So let's talk about Biden's climate policy proposals. What stands out to you?
1: Well, Biden ran and won on the most ambitious climate platform of any presidential candidate in American history. He pledged uh, really big ideas and targets like 100% clean electricity by 2035, which is faster than any state law in the books right now. He pledged to spend $2 trillion over four years on climate action and investments. And just to kind of understand that number, each year the federal government typically spends about $4 trillion. So that's a big number. And he said that 40% of those investments would be going to frontline communities places that have been hosting a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure in the past like black communities communities of color as well as places where fossil fuel extraction has happened and where it's really important that we have jobs as part of the transition you know places like west virginia and and ohio so i think that those targets are really uh, big and exciting ideas
2: we got a comment from john bevan in massachusetts john wrote It will take a Pearl Harbor-level climate-related catastrophe that affects most of the population to wake us up, I'm afraid. The fires and the hurricanes apparently don't affect enough people. Now, Leah, based on your research and your colleagues' research, I know you say Biden's plans go further than any other administration, but are they ambitious
1: enough to stop most catastrophic warming scenarios? Well, here's what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, which is the international scientific body that researches that question. You know, what do we have to do by when? What they say is that by 2030, in the next decade... We have to cut global emissions by about half, specifically by 45%, in order to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And keep in mind, we've already warmed the planet by about 1 degree Celsius. So we don't have a lot of wiggle room, so to speak. And the target for 100% clean electricity by 2035 that Biden very much actively campaigned on and won on you know, that would allow us to clean up our electricity system over about the necessary time frame. And what clean electricity can do is it can allow us to... Power our cars through things like electric vehicles, our buildings through things like induction stoves and heat pumps, and even parts of heavy industry with clean electricity. And so by cleaning up the electricity system, let's say by 2035, we could be cutting emissions by upwards of 70 to 80%. Now that's not just going to involve, of course, cleaning up electricity. We also need to get lots of electric vehicles on the road. we got to retrofit a lot of buildings to get fossil gas out of homes for cooking and heating. We've also got to be thinking a lot about decarbonizing other parts of our economy, and that's going to require legislation and and investment from Congress.
2: You know, not everyone is a strong supporter of the type of aggressive climate action we're talking about. Uh, We spoke with John Oblock. He's from Wethersfield, Connecticut. And he used to work in engineering. And he says the response to climate change has to be more balanced than it's been and that we need to consider the impact of the economy.
4: It's really a progressive mantra right now that we need to do something about climate change. So we're talking about all sorts of constrictions and taxes and rewards and penalties and new technologies.
2: But Alex Rodriguez, a community organizer with the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters, says too much is at stake to not be
4: aggressive. We can't put a cost on our livelihood, especially those communities who are working two and three jobs to make ends meet.
2: I want you to respond to these comments. What do
1: you think about them? I don't think that climate action has anything to do with ideology, with being progressive or conservative, Republican or Democrat. We're talking about having a livable and stable climate. This is the bedrock of our economy. If we continue to see heat waves, massive forest fires, hurricanes, inland uh, tornadoes, you know, these impacts cost so much money. We're talking in the billions of dollars a year already. So I think it is not a question of being progressive or being conservative. It's a question of whether or not we think we'd like to have an economy in this century. Because the pathway that we're on right now is a really dangerous one for lots of coastal communities across this country. And you don't just see this from people like me. You see this from young conservatives, young Republicans who are very worried about the climate crisis, because they understand that if they're 20 years old, you know, they're going to be, what, 50 by the time 2050 rolls around? And what will the world look like for them at that time period? So let's say the Biden administration
2: successfully uses some federal agency spending to target and address climate change, and Congress passes a major climate bill is that
1: enough to slow climate change or stall it or reverse it? Absolutely. You know, the United States is a huge engine of innovation uh, for around the world. So if the United States could clean up its electricity system by 2035, that would mean that we had brought down the cost of various technologies. We had figured out new engineering and management systems for managing our grid with lots of clean energy on it. And we could share that technology and knowledge or sell it to countries all around the world. And that would help the entire planet be on a pathway to decarbonization. We've already seen this when countries like Germany or even China or even parts of Canada have moved ahead and have invested heavily in solar technology. They have brought down the cost of that technology for the entire planet. We can see the same thing happen if the United States chooses to act. So this is very much a solvable problem. We just need to invest in it and have government policy that steers us in the right direction. If you're just joining us,
2: I'm talking to Leah Stokes, an expert on climate and environmental politics. Leah, we've talked a lot about leadership from the federal government. I want to bring in other stakeholders and leaders. John Bear Mitchell is coordinator for the University of Maine's Wabanaki Center Outreach and a citizen of the Penobscot Nation. And we asked him to share his thoughts on climate change.
4: I think without indigenous people talking about climate change and having just industry and business, academics, naturalists talk about climate change, it's a smile with a missing tooth in the front. It's really never complete.
2: Talk a little bit about the role of other stakeholders like Native Americans and also how we we can successfully push forward initiatives just beyond the U.S.
1: Well, the indigenous uh, communities of the world have been absolutely critical to the environmental movement, to environmental protection, and to the fight against climate change. You know, indigenous land defenders around the world really put their bodies on the line to try to protect ecosystems, for example, like the Amazon. And many of them in any given year actually end up murdered for their uh, efforts to try to protect our living planet. And so I do think that the uh, indigenous movement has been really critical to elevating the issue of climate change. And you can see that, for example, in the uh, DAPL protest uh, to try to stop building a pipeline, which, for example, our incoming, hopefully, um, Department of Interior Secretary Deb Holland participated in. uh, And she will be the first indigenous member of a cabinet, uh, which is very, very exciting.
2: So then there's regional and state initiatives. And ahead of this conversation, we spoke to Bradley Campbell, who's president of the Conservation Law Foundation based in Boston. And he says he feels strongly that both, both regional and state initiatives have to remain on the table.
1: The needle moves slowly in Washington. And the, the only way to accelerate climate action really is to make sure we're doing at the state and regional level what's necessary to create the infrastructure to smooth the way if you will for tougher standards because even the bravest politician is not going to have the courage to enact standards or proceed you know as quickly as we need them to on climate if there's resistance at the state and regional level, if the states haven't demonstrated what's possible.
2: I just want to set the groundwork for what's happened in New England. For one, 11 states, including all New England states, are part of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which works to reduce CO2 emissions from the power grid. Then this past December, three New England states and D.C. signed on to the Transportation and Climate Initiative, and that's an effort to cut transportation emissions. We've got Vermont and Maine, who have both passed climate change legislation uh, with state emissions targets, and Massachusetts is in the process of doing so. I'm wondering, Leah, do you see the importance and effectiveness of these initiatives in the context of federal initiatives?
1: Absolutely. I wrote a whole book on the subject. Uh, My book, Short-Circuiting Policy, looks at state efforts to clean up the electricity system over the last 30-plus years, but... I think what the perspective we just heard is is missing from is that actually state and federal action is in a symbiotic relationship. So when states act, you know, to, for example, try to build a lot more clean energy at, at a faster time uh, scale, they're often drawing on tax incentives that Congress has passed to help fund that transition. And so... We've obviously been focusing a lot on state and local action for the past four years because under the Trump administration, there was not a lot of positive forward momentum that was possible. We are going to see mobilization for climate legislation in a way that we never have before. And so I think that, yes, states have provided really fantastic models, particularly the clean electricity standard, which is the exact idea that Joe Biden ran and campaigned and won on. Um, but We've got to get that done in D.C. because the patchwork approach of some states, such as the Northeast, pulling ahead and other parts of the country doing next to nothing, can't hold any longer. We have to have the entire country cleaning up its electricity system in the coming decades.
2: One of the places we've seen resistance here in New England um, is actually from residents. For example, the Vineyard Wind Project off of Martha's Vineyard, which, if approved, would create an offshore wind farm that could generate enough energy to power over 400,000 Massachusetts homes, has gotten a lot of opposition from fishermen like Daniel Farnham. He's a whiting and squid fisherman in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And let's take a listen to what he had to say.
4: It terrifies me to picture trying to drive through a forest of thousands of turbines, which if every state's offshore wind energy mandate comes to fruition, then that's what it will be, several thousand wind turbines offshore and that's a lot of lost fishing ground and a lot of, you know, possibly dangerous interactions.
2: So that's his perspective. And I'm wondering, Leah, if you could just talk about how individuals have maybe been a roadblock to some climate initiatives here in New England and our region.
1: Yeah, I followed the Cape Wind saga very closely and various efforts to put onshore wind throughout Massachusetts And when people talk about, quote, potentially dangerous in terms of driving through a wind turbine array offshore, what they're not thinking about is the actual lived daily dangerous effects of fossil fuels in black and Hispanic and indigenous backyards. Because if we do not build clean infrastructure— Now, what we are doing is keeping open dirty infrastructure, which is overwhelmingly placed in Black and Hispanic backyards. And that infrastructure is not hypothetically dangerous. It is very dangerous. We're talking about health impacts, shortened life expectancy, asthma, all kinds of terrible impacts. And as a society, we have chosen to put those fossil fuel plants in communities of color and we have turned a blind eye to that and said somehow that that doesn't matter, that their bodies can be sacrificed, that it's okay that they can't breathe. Well, I don't think that that is okay anymore. And I think that the kind of nimbyism, meaning not in my backyard, uh, behavior of many, unfortunately, throughout the Northeast has been really problematic to the clean energy transition. And the fact that we have so few, few offshore wind projects in this country is really a travesty. So I think it's understandable that people are scared of new things and that they're fearful of change. But we have to build clean energy infrastructure and offshore wind is going to be a critical part of the puzzle. And people need to be thinking about if we don't build this clean infrastructure, they need to be thinking about the dirty infrastructure that they are basically saying we should keep open in black, Hispanic and indigenous communities. And I don't think that that is ethically right. Do Biden's proposals do enough to address equity? Absolutely. I think that Biden really heard the uh, protest this summer as part of the movement for Black Lives, and the climate movement also really heard those protests. And there has been a reckoning that justice has not been central enough to the climate fight. And so a pledge, for example, that 40% of investments go to frontline communities, that pledge comes directly from campaigns from within the environmental justice community. And so I do think that The environmental justice movement has really broken through, and hopefully that will be reflected in legislation as well as executive action in the coming year.
2: Before I let you go, what happens if in four or eight years we have a new president who doesn't prioritize climate action? Will everything just be undone?
1: No, and we can already see that because we had that happen. We had Obama, who did an enormous amount to try to work on climate change. Not enough, but he did try to move the ball down the court. And then we had Donald Trump, who appointed lobbyists from the oil uh, and gas industry to run important offices like the Environmental Protection Agency and our Department of Interior. And you can see that Trump tried to undermine a lot of progress But he wasn't able to in many ways it's hard to roll some things back and if you bring the cost of wind and solar and clean energy down the market will begin to take over and we will continue to have some momentum so i am hopeful that we can make a lot of progress in the next four years well we'll
2: end on that optimistic note leah stokes is an assistant professor in the department of political science at the university of california santa barbara and the author of the book, Short-Circuiting Policy. It's been so great talking with you, Professor Stokes. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Coming up, climate migration. If things get bad, where will people go? This is a New England News Collaborative special with America Amplified. I'm Tracy Griffith.
2: And I'm Morgan Springer. This is a New England News Collaborative special on climate change with America Amplified. I'm Morgan Springer.
0: And I'm Tracy Griffith.
2: You know, the reality is that there are huge swaths of our country that are becoming so hot or so smoky or so flooded that they are no longer habitable or will will not be habitable in the near, near future. And there are thousands of people that are going to be needing to relocate.
0: That's Elena Mahali. She's a senior attorney at the Conservation Law Foundation and is based in Vermont. And what she's talking about is climate migration. When people, prompted by climate change, pick up and leave their homes for safer ground.
2: We're going to spend the final segment of the show answering this question. If things get bad, where will people go? One place Mahali thinks people will migrate to is New England. That's what Chris Williams did. He moved from Alabama to New Hampshire. Welcome to the show, Chris.
4: Yeah, no, no, it was my pleasure.
2: My understanding is that 20 years ago, you left Mobile, Alabama, to live in New Hampshire, and I'm wondering if you could describe for our listeners what Mobile was like when you left.
4: <laughs> um, it's a small town um, right on the water. It's got three universities, so it's fairly progressive. It's a it's a it's a fun little town, but you know, I I decided that. I was, I was one hurricane too many. And, and I had decided that, you know, after getting a couple of different types of uh, IT certifications, that the town was too small for me. It's definitely a, a great place to live. But I needed to get into a larger community where uh, I could spread my wings.
2: So it sounds like your reasons were twofold. One was to be in a larger community, also to get away from the hurricanes. What were the hurricanes that you were experiencing like?
4: So, uh, category three, category fours. I never lived through like a direct cat five hit. These were the kinds of hurricanes that you know, if if they brushed by, you know, one one hit Biloxi directly and it ripped off the siding on on one of the houses. It just became standard operating procedure that you know you would go to Home Depot, you would buy a bunch of plywood, you'd board up the windows, you'd crack the windows so that the pressure differential didn't change too rapidly you fill up the bathtub with water in case you, the water supply cut out. It just, it became this process. And, and after, I, I don't know how many I lived through, but eventually I was just like, this is, this is not, this is not for me anymore. So I decided to move.
2: So once you decide to leave Alabama, there's a lot of places you could have gone. How did you figure out where you were going to go and how many places did you actually consider?
4: my my palate for for travel my tolerance for travel is very wide so i wasn't i wasn't even just considering the states i was like looking at western in, in europe i was looking at asia pac i was looking at new zealand and australia um i had i had a, a bunch of different things that i that i was taking into consideration for my move natural disasters being one of them cost of living people that i knew that were in the area Job offers, job opportunities, you know what the i t scene was looking like in those areas at the time. all of those were were points of consideration
2: and then what kind of directed you toward New Hampshire?
4: Well, no hurricanes that was a big plus uh, yeah we get we get the occasional noreaster but but I, I like snow, so i 'm fine with that. Great it scene uh, we 've got you know MIT, Harvard, Cambridge, and all of the uh, the pharmaceuticals down within the Boston area. I had a really good friend that was encouraging me to move up here at the time. And, um, yeah, it just it just seemed like the right move at the right time.
2: So in terms of now and the future, I mean, climate change is, it's not like climate change isn't a reality in New England, in New Hampshire. So how do you think about living there and how, how do you navigate that? Do you feel insulated from climate change or does it feel like something you're still considering?
4: Oh, I, th- I think it's still salient to every time that every time that we have a conversation so my wife and i used to flip houses and uh so we've we've lived in seven different houses in the new england area in new hampshire and every time we would take a look at a new place one of the metrics for for considering living in that place is is that house going to be here in 50 years if you know we see water ri- water tables rise by x if we have certain natural disasters you know how would that affect or impinge this house and and would we want to invest in a house like that you know in the future so it's very much still a salient conversation.
2: Hurricanes and wildfires and, and flooding have become more severe and dangerous in the country in recent years. Do you have any advice for other people who might consider a move because of the impacts of climate change?
4: Look at the science. Look at the metrics. You know, there, there's a there's a lot of political rancor around something that should just be a... A, a straight up numbers game, you know, look at what the scientists that have you know, spent their lifetime studying this stuff are saying, and try not to inject, you know, partisan belief systems into it.
2: In some ways, you're, you're ahead of your time, right? Like you moved 20 years ago, in part because of climate change. And for example, the term climate migrant, which many would consider you, is just becoming more popularly known now does does it feel that way like you were ahead of your time
4: not to pat myself too hard on the back but uh yeah (laughs) you know it it was definitely something that so i have a, a scientific background and so i just kind of like listen to what the experts in field x y and z are saying about things and how do i plan my life accordingly to that me and my wife went into lockdown in february we listened to the epidemiologists and, and decided, what were they doing? You know, what were the preeminent members of the field doing? And we just emulated that. Climate people are, have been talking about this and raising the alarm for a very long period of time. And, and some of them were talking about, you know, if you were going to move, where would you move to? And so I took that to heart.
2: Chris, I want to thank you so much for, for talking to us. This has been so great.
4: It was my pleasure. Thank you, Morgan.
2: Chris Williams lives in New Hampshire. He moved there from Mobile, Alabama 20 years ago, in part because of climate change.
0: Well, Chris isn't the only person zeroing in on New England. New Hampshire Public Radio's podcast, Outside In, did a survey and they heard from a number of people who made a similar choice.
2: One of the things we wondered is if there's research out there pinpointing the best spots to live in the U.S. in terms of climate change. And there is. Back in 2017, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency released what they call a Climate Resiliency Screening Index. On the list, the top most resilient counties in the U.S are in Alaska. But actually, 13 out of the top 50 of those counties are right here in New England, like Addison County, Vermont, Hancock County, Maine, and Dukes County, Massachusetts. Now, obviously, as we heard from Chris, a lot more goes into making the decision to move, but people could decide that New England is a good spot for them.
0: So then, I think the big questions are, will more people migrate here, and will mass migration happen? Joining us to help tackle these questions is Elizabeth Fussell, She's an Associate Professor of Population Studies at Brown University in Rhode Island. Welcome to the show, Beth. Hi, thank you for having me. So according to reporting from ProPublica, if carbon emissions continue at extreme levels, by like 2070, more than 4 million people in the U.S. could find themselves living outside of ideal living conditions for human life. What exactly makes a place unlivable? Well, the ProPublica reporting
5: on the habitable niche that is necessary for human life is mainly focused on temperatures, but also precipitation. And the concern is that increasing heat days and dry days and also lack of water will make some places near the equator less habitable for human life.
0: Pam Ferraro from Greenwich, Connecticut, emailed us. She said that in the Northeast, we are spared the big hurricanes, floods, and fires that affect other parts of our country. So she's right about that. So while we do experience climate change here, and we'll probably experience it more, is there a time down the line where you could see a mass migration to New England?
5: Well, I think that would be far off in the future. The scenario that you started off with with the habitable niche projected conditions to 2070. Right now what I would say would be more likely to happen than a mass migration is a very gradual change in the distribution of the population over a long period of time where people behave more like Chris Williams did, where he incorporated the climate into a migration decision that he would have made anyway. And it affected his decision to leave, but also importantly, where to go once he made that decision to move. And so that's an example of how the environment will get incorporated into people's migration decisions in a more routine way that will gradually shift the population away from some of those more threatened places and toward places where climate change might not have
0: as great a consequence. So I'd like to shift the conversation to talk about equity. We asked Miriam Traore Chazanoel, a senior expert at the United Nations Migration Agency, to share her thoughts on climate migration. If you're a climate migrant, you're probably one of the lucky ones Because you're managing to escape and you're managing to create opportunities for yourself elsewhere. And that, in fact, people who might be most vulnerable are the ones who simply do not have the means to leave the areas where they are. So, Beth, who can make that decision to migrate and who
5: can't? We don't know very much about what we call trapped populations, those people who have too few resources to move in response to a strong climate driver. In the United States, there aren't very many people who lack the resources to move altogether. But there are a lot of people who might find it costly to move away from the place where they've lived their entire life and where everybody they know lives. And so there are different kinds of those social resources are going to influence their decision, too. It's not just about money that keeps people in place.
0: You don't agree with Miriam that only the lucky ones will
5: escape? No one will be able to get fully away from climate change impacts. What people will be fleeing is the degradation of environmental conditions. And this is going to happen in a slow... Process where I think what will happen is the most advantaged people will be able to either adapt in place or relocate to safer places, while less advantaged people may remain in hazardous places for much longer so that when they do experience an extreme event that threatens their life and property, they may be less able to get away in time or if they do get away in time they'll suffer greater losses. So what you have in this situation is the experience of what we call the Matthew effect where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer as climate change sort of unravels the fabric of certain communities where the impacts are greatest. So There's no doubt that we will all be affected by climate change in the future. And migration is one type of adaptation to climate change, but it's not the perfect solution.
0: So another person that we talked to is Elena Mahali. She is a senior attorney at the Conservation Law Foundation and is based in Vermont.
2: One of the biggest issues I think is going to be how we as a state just deal with the social stressors as we get tested in terms of our willingness to welcome strangers who are not from here and what that's going to look like and how we can plan ahead so that we see the opportunity in more people coming instead of a threat.
0: How should towns and cities across New England be planning to welcome these migrants?
2: So I think
5: the issue of welcoming migrants is a concern in the United States, regardless of the reason why people are moving. And so, as a country, we have to decide how we're going to welcome international migrants and help them to assimilate into the United States. And then, in terms of our internal migrants, we have to make sure that when people move into our communities, they do so without harming the opportunities of the residents who are already there. What I'm pointing to when I make that comment is this issue of gentrification and the kind of housing crises that happen when cities grow really fast and there isn't enough housing or there isn't enough there aren't enough places in the schools for students who are coming in. Some communities are probably very happy to have new people coming in because many places in New England are actually facing population decline and welcoming newcomers into those communities could be an opportunity to inject new energy, vitality, and resources into the locality.
0: That was Elizabeth Fussell, an associate professor of population studies at Brown University in Rhode Island. And that's our show for today. We hope you learned something. I know I did. I'm Tracy Griffith.
2: And I'm Morgan Springer. Our program today was produced by me, Lily Tyson, John Dankosky, and Lydia Brown. Vanessa De La Torre is the executive editor of the New England News Collaborative, theme music by Latrell James. Special thanks to Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio for connecting us with climate migrant Chris Williams. Thanks also to Nadine Sabai and to all the New England News Collaborative environment reporters for their input along the way.
0: America Amplified and the New England News Collaborative are made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for listening.